Kids, go to bed. But we don't want to go to bed. Noted. Go to bed anyway. But we really don't want to go to bed. That data is irrelevant to me. Go to bed. But mom, mom tells us we need to brush our teeth before we go to bed. Your mother is normally a very wise woman, but tonight you are going straight to bed. Well, can we read in bed? Reading takes light, and light costs money because it's, it uses electricity. I can't afford it. Go to bed. Well, can we read by the light of the window? You'll strain your eyes, then I'll need to buy glasses, which I can't afford, go to bed. But Dad, it's summertime. I didn't realize that obedience was a seasonal obligation. Go to bed. But Dad, you're being mean. You finally figured me out, kids. Go to bed. But Dad, cease striving with me. These conversations happen almost nightly in my home. It's a game of tug and war. It's, it's a wrestling match, a, a laboring against one another for who knows best. And I actually think it's a good picture of how we as people often interact with God as our Father. Like children, we think we know what is best based on what our eyes see and our hearts want. We worry and fret about everything around us. We insist. We strive. We labor. We worry. And God says to us, Be still and know that I am God. And what he means by this is far bigger than what we often talk about when we, have, we hear that verse quoted to us. We often hear that God is instructing us to kind of have a meditative heart and, 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 and have a sense of peace within because we know that God is God. And that's certainly an element here. But really the core of what he says to us when he says, be still and know that I am God... He's telling us to cease striving with Him about the difficulties of our lives and recognize His unchallengeable authority over everything we fear, everything we want, everything we hope. He is telling us to quit acting as if He were not God. To stop being concerned with lesser things than His glory displayed precisely in the way He chooses to in our lives. It's a call to close our mouths about the chaos of life around us and open our eyes to the staggering power of God over everything. And we see this command in Psalm 46. Would you turn with me there? And can we read that together? And what I'd like to do is make a few observations from this text. And as we read it, you're going to have a lot of familiar verses ring in your ears. There's a, there's a reason we love this psalm. So let's read it together. Psalm 46. 
God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I love this psalm, and you love this psalm. The sons of Korah wrote it. And all the psalms that the sons of Korah wrote, you can look in your Bible and it makes note of who the authors are, they all emphasize the majesty and the power of God. They're meant to be sung as regular part of the temple worship in the Old Testament. And for good reason. The songwriters, the sons of Korah, knew that the people of God would need to regularly rehearse the glory of His character because they will forget if they don't. We are prone to lose sight of God. Not, not forget Him exactly, but forget what His power has to do with the things that we experience in our daily lives. And in this psalm, we can make two major observations about who God is and how His people ought to respond to Him. So here's the first thing, the first observation we see from this text. God's presence is the only stability in the chaos of life. God's presence is the only stability in the chaos of life. Look at verse 1. Look how our psalm opens up. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. These opening lines, as they often do in the psalms, introduce the topic for the rest of the psalm. God is compared to a fortress, a place of strength, of help, like a towering stone wall. If, if an army comes against you, you want to be on top of a towering stone wall. You don't want to be down in the muddy fields. But notice how the hymn writers place this fact about God in the context of a real-world situation. Friends, look down at your Bibles at verse 1. Look at the first line, God is our refuge and strength. Look at the second line, a very present help. When? In trouble. You know what I love about this? The Bible never talks about God and his character and his strength in sort of a theoretical way that just floats in the universe unrelated to us. 
Yes, it's true that God is God all the way up there. But the Bible speaks of it as very pertinent to what we deal with here below. God is a present help in trouble. Do you have trouble in your life? You do. I do. God is a present help in it. And so, let me just ask you momentarily for a second here. Do you read your Bible like this? Do you read it expecting that God is not just speaking about Himself? He is, but He's speaking about Himself as it pertains to your life. God is speaking to you about your experience and all the stories of these people in far-off lands and all the Proverbs about the rich and the poor, about the lazy and the hardworking, and all the letters written to churches dotting the ancient Mediterranean. God is a present help in the troubles of all of their lives. And that is no less true of the troubles in your life because you belong to God in the same way. God is a present help in trouble. This is true through the ages. And so we move on as we look at verse 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. This is a terrifying metaphor. Here we see the central metaphor of the psalm. Earth and sea, land and water, mountains and oceans. It's a contrast. The earth, the land, the mountains... All metaphors of places of security. The most stable and permanent geographical features in the world are mountains. Silent and immovable. Ancient giants that generation after generation have looked at and seen the exact same thing. Stable. This is in contrast to waters, which are roaring and foaming and trembling. It's, it's chaos. In fact, the sea is a common metaphor in Scripture for chaos and the threat that it brings. Think about the nature of the ocean. It, it, it's temperamental. It's, it's this expanse of nothingness. It's angry. It's beautiful. It's never the same. It's never stable. If somebody left you on a mountain, you could survive. If somebody left you in the ocean, you would die. So think about what we read about today, this, the, the, the news of this hurricane coming in off the waters, all these news about shark attacks and tsunamis and rip currents and tropical storms. They remind us that the sea is a more dangerous place than the land on which we live. In literature, both ancient and modern, the sea reminds us of our insecurity and smallness from Odysseus fleeing from the angry sea god Poseidon to Captain Ahab tossed about in the churning deep as he hunts for Moby Dick. In fact, in a brilliant passage written by Herman Melville in Moby Dick, he used to be a sailor and then he became an author, listen to what he writes about the sea. This really captures the essence of the chaos of this metaphor we see in Scripture. This is what he says. A moment's consideration will teach that however baby man may brag about his science and skill. 
however much in a flattering future that science and skill may improve him, yet forever and forever, to the crack of doom, the sea will insult and murder him and pulverize the stateliest, stiffest ship that he can make. The psalmist are painting a picture of the most terrifying circumstances they could imagine. The stable mountains losing their stability and being cast into the chaos of the ocean. They're describing the worst possible circumstances of human life they could think of. Human life descending into utter chaos and danger. A few years ago, I traveled with my dad and my brothers to attend a funeral of a little girl from a family who has been friends of ours for a long time. She was only nine years old. She'd been out on a boat with her father on a speedboat off the East Coast somewhere. They'd have a day of recreation and fun. And the day was over and the sun was setting and they decided to head in. And the waters were very calm. The, the night was very still. And she had this life vest on all day, and it was rubbing against her. And she said, Dad, can I take my life vest off just for the, for, the, for the easy cruise to go in? And the dad said, Sure, honey, you can take that off. So she took off her life vest, and they were cruising in. But a wind picked up. A freak wind picked up and hit the boat at exactly the wrong angle. And it shot the girl out of the boat and into the water. And panicking, the dad turned around and he went to go find her. But the sea had swallowed her up. She was gone. He never found his little girl. What does that teach us? Always wear your life vest. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is this. The sea is chaotic. And life, human life, is chaotic. There's a randomness to the dangers that we face. So we read this and we feel the weight of the metaphor that the psalmist is saying. There are times in life where it seems like the most stable of things, like mountains, are cast down into the most dangerous and chaotic of things, the seas. And we suffer and we grieve. But as we continue, we see something in verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. So the principle we see from this is that God is an unshakable city floating above both land and sea. That's kind of what the metaphor, that's how you should visually picture this. So land gets cast down into the sea. Where do I find my stability? It's not in the sea, but it's not in the land anymore. Where do I go? Visualize, it's, a, it's like a city floating above both of these things. God is in the midst of her. And in a brilliant literary turn, if you notice this, the song shifts the metaphor of water from an angry ocean now to a river, which is also something, a body of water, right? But this river is calm and sparkling. It's flowing from the happy city of God. 
Water is a terribly dangerous force, but it's also necessary to life and provision. Water in the heart of the sea will drown you, but water in the heart of a desert city will keep you alive. The picture is powerful here. You have this raging, foamy, angry waters are tamed by God for the happy use of His people. It's a very powerful metaphor. And this shifted metaphor is picturing God's presence with His people to help in times of trouble. When God is around foaming, angry waters, they are calmed for the service of His people. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. And the consequence of God's presence in the city is she shall not be moved. The point in this language here is the stability of God's presence makes the most ancient mountain seem like melted seawater. What you once tried to put your confidence in, let's flee to the mountains, we'll be safe there. Nope, those mountains have slid into the heart of the ocean. Where you once tried to place your confidence, you no longer try to anymore. Instead, you have something better. You have the presence of God. And only God being near will keep people from getting lost in the chaotic sea of life. God will help her when morning dawns. This is a comment to the perfection of God's timing. The certainty of His deliverance, despite nighttime seeming to last forever. Have you ever been up at night because of pain or because you've been worried about something and you just can't get it out of your mind? And you look at your clock next to your bed and it's like four minutes have passed every time you look and it's just driving you insane and all you want is for morning time to come because it just somehow feels better and you get up and get a shower and get going with your day. You want dawn to come. In those moments, do you ever actually doubt that dawn's going to come? No, you don't. You don't. That's the point of this metaphor. As sure as the sun will come up, God's help will be there for His people. You've never doubted that the sun's going to come up, even if you've really longed for it to come up quicker than it is. You've never doubted that it will come up. And so the people of God never doubt that at the time they need it, God will help them. In verse 6, the nations rage, the kingdoms totters, He utters His voice and the earth melts. The nations raging here is actually the same word used early in verse 3 if you look, for the water raging indicating that the psalmists are not just speaking of natural disasters here. The nations are those who raise themselves up against God's people, those who hate God and His holy character. And we see here that the voice of God rings out even over those troubles, whether they're natural or personal, whether they're circumstantial or relational. And all of it melts before Him. Nothing can stop the voice of God. So let me pause and ask you, what's the chaos in your life right now? What's the trouble stalking you? Take a moment and identify it. What is your trouble? Now let me ask you, do you really believe 
that God is a present help in that trouble? Maybe it's a painful circumstance, a threatening health condition or a chronic pain. Maybe, maybe it's a schedule that's so pressing you don't think peace of mind is possible with all that you have to do and all the demands on you. Maybe it's you, don't, you, you have bills that you're unable to pay. My friends, you need to be reminded from this psalm, God is not far from this trouble as if He doesn't care about those specific things. Maybe it's not circumstantial trouble. Maybe it's a threatening person in your life. Someone has your number. They want to harm you in some way. A boss does not have your best interests at heart. A family member is angry and critical towards you. Friends, you need to be reminded from the psalm that God is involved in this relationship. Even though He's not necessarily taking your side on every particularity of the conflict, He does love you and He has your best interest at heart in it. Relational conflict is a tool by which He will prove Himself faithful to you. Maybe it's not circumstantial or relational. Maybe it's, maybe it's just you're tired by the chaotic world that we live in. Babies are butchered and their body parts are sold. Sexual practices that wither the human soul are being celebrated all around us. Powerful people distract themselves with their pet problems while ignoring the oppression of the weak. Friends, this psalm is the only way that we can lay our head on the pillow at night knowing that God is in the midst of His city and that city will not be shaken. You will not be ultimately shaken by these things. So this leads us to our second observation of the text. Here it is. Quiet trust is the only proper response to being in the presence of so great a God. Quiet trust is the only proper response to being in the presence of so great a God. Here's the logic of the second half of the psalm, if you want it just in a nutshell. Fear ends when striving ends. Fear ends when striving ends. And striving ends when we agree we're overmatched. We can't, we can't match God. Fear ends when striving ends. And striving ends when we agree with God that we're overmatched. We're not God. We can't go up against Him. We have to rely on Him. So let's see this logic as it plays out. The psalmists give us really just two actions to take in what it means to, 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 to be quiet before God, to trust God. There's two verbs, main verbs that they give. Behold and be still. Behold and be still. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is where we see behold. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How He's brought desolations on earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Friends, to behold is to look upon, to consider, 
to, to reorient your perspective, to focus on something. Instead of looking at the threat and the chaos around you, you are looking at the overwhelming power of God that's described in His Word and that's been displayed in your life countless times before. Instead of looking here, you're looking there. That's what it means to behold. Look at the works of the Lord means considering both what He is able to do and what He has done. Is God able to do anything? God is able to do anything that He sets His will to do. Anything. You're considering what He's done. Has God not been good to you? Has God not delivered His people finally and truly in every single situation? Has He not given them graces and kindnesses to to mark the way of difficulty in their lives? He has. Behold that. Look at that. And specifically, what we look at in these verses is He brings desolation on earth. He ceases war. He takes the weapons of war, the bow, the spear, and these were the, the, the terrors of the Israelite army, chariots, and He destroys them all. In other words, the greatest threats that mankind can craft are easily disposed of by God. Do you know Israel was normally at a disadvantage in their military technology? And they looked at all of the awesome weapons that everybody else had, and they were provoked to fear. But they had a secret nuclear weapon. And that weapon's name was Yahweh, God. And God was utterly unthreatened by an arrow and by a chariot. Do you think that God is utterly unthreatened by the weapons that raise themselves up against you? I doubt any of you are scared of arrows and chariots, actively scared of them. That's not part of your daily experience. But what is? What are you threatened by? What do you fear? In the same way that God would laugh if somebody took a longbow and aimed it at him and said, if you don't do this, God, I'm going to put this arrow right through you. Foolish. Foolish. In the same way that God would laugh at that, God laughs at the troubles and the threats that have come against us. We learn something vital about the Christian look here, the Christian life here. For every look that you take at the things that threaten you, at the things that you're scared of, you must take a return look at the supreme power of God. You must. If you don't, your fears will take over you. If you don't, you will be discouraged and you will fall away from doing what God is calling you to do. You will not trust Him. Beholding is something more expansive than just simply learning a fact about God. You can learn the fact that God is powerful and in control of the smallest details of your life, but to behold it means to consider how that doctrine has been demonstrated in in the realm of real life. The works of the Lord are His interruptions into the chaos of the world around you in order to save His people 
It is believing that God is actively participating in the hardships that you face, in the hardships that His people endure. And we have to behold these regularly. Or we will sink like a stone in the water. You know where we see this powerfully demonstrated? I want you to turn here with me to a story in the Gospels that you know well. It's a story that involves also a mountain, a sea, and a Savior. It's Peter walking on the water to Jesus. Matthew chapter 14. Turn with me there for a moment. Matthew 14. We're going to look starting in verse 22 here. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while Jesus dismissed the crowds. And after Jesus had dismissed the crowds, he went on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Note this, friends. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Friends, there are so many beautiful things about that story. But what we see there for sure, as it relates to Psalm 46, is that Peter would have sunk like the stone he was named after into the water if all he looked at were the wind and the waves around him, the chaos churning around him. Did you notice when he started to sink? It's when he took his eyes off of Jesus. It's when he forgot that for Jesus to be present meant that he was protected from what he was most threatened by. And he cried out a cry that every Christian must cry when the waters of life begin to threaten him. Do you remember what he said? Three simple words. Lord, save me. And with the same hand that ignited the stars and that crafted the mountains and that divided the waters, Jesus reaches down and he takes Peter and he brings him up. And he calls him something. Do you remember what he called him? Oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little faith. What was Jesus wanting from Peter in that moment? 
Faith. Faith. He wanted him to trust that Jesus really was. Jesus' presence really did change the threat of the situation that he was in. And he asks you the same question. Why do you doubt? Christian, the answer is because you are not beholding the works of the Lord. The disciples, in seeing that Jesus walked effortlessly on the same waves that were threatening their very existence, worshipped Him. And they said at the end of this narrative, truly, you are the Son of God. So think back to the source of your greatest distress that I asked you to think of a moment ago. The storm you find yourself in. Do you see your Savior standing on that raging sea like a mountain of stability in the swirling waters? And do you say to Him, truly, you are the Son of God? Consider the very heart of the Gospel for a moment, friends. The ultimate threat in the universe, the ultimate chaos, is actually not the stuff we worry about here on earth. It's the judgment of God. Water is used as a metaphor not just of chaos and difficulty in the Old Testament. It's used as a metaphor of the wrath of God that's worse than any of those things. Where do we see this? Can you think of a certain story you learned when you were a child? About a boat and some animals? The water in the story of Noah was the clearest sign of God's judgment on a sinful world. And the water swallowed and destroyed everything in its path. There's a destruction that every one of us deserves for the faithless way that we respond to our troubles. The lustful activities of our secret hearts. The malicious words that we spew out about other people. And the only one who did not deserve that destruction was Jesus. And yet, He was the one who was plunged under the waters of God's wrath. Waters that no one had ever emerged from before. But praise God, He did emerge from them. Just like the ark was the only thing not destroyed by the waters, Jesus is the only thing not destroyed by the waters of God's wrath. And guess what? If you are in Him through faith, you're in that ark. You are attached to that Savior. You too will emerge from the waters of God's wrath. Because He took, He emerged from those waters to take His place at a throne in heaven where even right now, He is praying for those who believe in Him. He's interceding for them. He's their defense attorney. He's saying to them, he's saying to God, they are mine. Lend your hand of protection to them. How astounding, friends. Don't, don't overlook how powerful that gospel message is in the way you understand the troubles of your life. Because if Jesus was the one who saved you from a watery grave, is He not going to save you from the watery troubles of your life? 
Can we not trust His power to help us in everything that we fear in the particular way that He chooses at the particular time? It doesn't mean that He will do what you want Him to do in all situations. But what it does mean is He has not forgotten you and He will lend His protective hand to guide every circumstance in the way that is best for His glory and best for your ultimate safety and protection. So behold that. And the second thing is, be still. That's the second verb here. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What does it mean here to be still? And who's God speaking to? Scholars are sort of divided on whether to understand God speaking a peaceful word of instruction to His people be still, or an angry command to his enemies, be still. I personally think it works both ways. Because to his enemies, God is saying, don't bother fighting against me. I will crush you. But to his people, he's saying, don't bother fighting against me. I will comfort you. Submit to me. Like me telling my kids to go to bed, they don't always perceive this as what is best for them. They have their opinions on how their lives ought to go in that moment. They attempt to arrange their lives accordingly. They at times strive against me. And in a sense, I can understand why. I'm a dad who's often motivated by selfishness and lack of wisdom. My authority is not always used righteously. But friends, we have no such excuse with God. His superior wisdom demands that we abandon our preferences for what our lives ought to be. His superior power demands that we stop trying to get Him to do what we want through our anxious efforts. So when He says to us, be still... He's not just giving you instruction to have peaceful thoughts. No, He's saying, stop working as if I were not God. And if my glory were not the most important thing here. In other words, we must never lose the connection between be still and know that I am God with I will be exalted in the earth. That's why He acts. And friends, if we're honest ourselves as we apply this, as we think about what it means to be still actually in our lives, I think we need to be honest with ourselves and and admit that our fears might just be the hardest thing we give over to God. We can give Him our money. We can give Him our time. We can give Him credit for all that we've been given. We can return thanks to Him. But giving Him your fears is the costliest thing of all. Because it requires you to stop insisting that you know what is best for your life. That you can, through your worry, stay vigilant enough to prevent what you most dread happening. So giving God your fears requires that you let God be God, that you submit to God's plan to bring about what He says is best for you. You know what one of my worst fears in the world is? 
losing a daughter or a son. I can't describe to you the sounds of weeping, public weeping, that I heard at that funeral of that little girl. Her parents were drowning in a sea of their own sorrow. But my friends, a ghostly figure was walking on that raging sea with them. And he reached down to give these grieving parents and he took hold of them in a special way that only he can and he kept them. The months and years following this little girl's death were not easy for her parents, but they found the joy of being cared for by a God who is present. And God gave them a really special, wonderful gift when they found her journal. And they opened her journal and they read the nine-year-old thoughts of a little girl who was thanking a God who had saved her from the sin that she knew was in her heart. You see, this little girl was not lost in the waters that roar and foam. She's drinking from the sparkling waters of the city of God. Because God used the same waters that could destroy her soul because she belonged to Him. He's using those waters to serve and protect and provide for her in her eternal resting place. That's how God takes what the threats to us and puts them on their head. Whatever your fears, my friends, you cannot ultimately, they cannot ultimately threaten you from what you most want. And do you know what you most want, whether you realize it or not? You most want to be safe in the arms of God. To be safe in the presence of God. That's what you most want. That's, the, that's the, the highest of anything that we desire here on earth is in some small way a pointer to the glory and the beauty and the pleasure of being safe in the presence of God. And this psalm assures us that the godness of God is used for the good of His people to bring them to that very place. And that's how he chooses to exalt himself among the nations. Isn't that amazing? God choosing to make his name glorious by serving and protecting and loving his people. How astounding. And so this psalm closes with a chorus from the Lord. It was in verse 7. It's also in verse 11 to close the psalm. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here's what I love about these two lines coupled together. The Lord of hosts is with us. That's another way of saying the Lord of armies is with us. It's a title that talks about the unyielding power of God. He is a force to be reckoned with. Okay, That's the first title. The Lord of hosts is with us. But then look at the second name he's given. The God of Jacob is our fortress. That Lord of armies is also the Lord of a particular man that he set his affection on. And in the same way that God knows Jacob's name, he knows your name.
Because Jacob, his covenant to Jacob was just a pointer to his covenant with his own son, Jesus. And you have been united to Jesus by faith. So the God of armies is with us. The God of Jesus, and by implication, the God of Jeremy, or Sarah, or or any one of your names, is our stronghold. So the God who is God all by himself, powerful, self-sufficient, utterly glorious, without any contribution from us, is also the God of a particular people. He is the God of you. And for some of you, it's been a long time since you've ceased striving, since you've been still and known that He is God. Let me pray for us.